Welcome to the M&A Source Podcast, a podcast brought to you by M&A Source, a nonprofit professional organization that provides training and education for small to mid-sized business mergers and acquisitions intermediaries. In each episode of the podcast, we will interview leaders in the M&A world to discuss education opportunities provided by M&A Source, trends in M&A markets, and useful insights provided by the experts that use them. Thank you for joining us. Hello, and welcome to this edition of the M&A Source podcast, sponsored by M&A Source, the source of opportunity and professional growth for mergers and acquisitions professionals in the lower middle market. I am your host, Lamar Stanley, Director and Head of Business Development at GenCap America, a lower middle market private equity firm based here in Nashville, Tennessee. And joining me today is Rick Marchese of Laris Loreno Private Capital. Uh, we're going international today because Rick, while he's calling me today from Tampa, uh, is based in Singapore. Well, Laris Loreno specializes in private corporate finance, uh, mergers, acquisitions, and private equity advisory services to middle market companies, family businesses, and family offices. And Rick is also the director uh, or a director at Trailmark, a U.S.-based private placement agent overseeing their Asia operations. And while he's calling today from Tampa, I will say I'd like to thank Rick because he's been very accommodating with the time scheduling uh, for our prep calls. He, uh, he was, I think by my guesstimate, was uh, talking to me in the dead of night previously. So much appreciated that, Rick, uh, but glad to hear that you're uh, visiting home for a little while. Not at all. Happy to be here and uh, happy to do it. Well, well, Rick, uh, as I like to typically do um, with these is, one, I want to say thank you for teaching uh, at our fall conference. Um, you taught a course on sell-side modeling, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more today. But before we do that, can you give us a little bit of background on your uh, history in the business? Sure. Um, well, as you know, Lamar, you and I share a, a very, very common background. Uh, I was in the Navy. I was a supply officer. So that's- strongest uh, Navy. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was doing supply chain, financial management, uh, left the Navy, went to business school, as you did, went to Chicago. And then from Chicago, I went into investment banking. Uh, I spent some time in New York. I spent some time, I was with uh, a couple of firms in New York, also in Silicon Valley and Palo Alto. And, um, and then I went out to Singapore 2010, spent some time in China prior to that. Uh, working with some Chinese companies, and then went to Singapore in 2011 and started a firm, uh, again, providing advisory and also assisting uh, family offices and other LPs that want to do direct investing in, in middle market buyouts. Got it. Well, first, thank you for your service. Uh, all kidding aside, um, and I'm sure some of our Army brethren with me on the board of M&A Source are cringing to hear us talk about this, but uh, so moving away from that, your firm, can you tell me the history behind the name first? Sure. Um, well, it's, it's, you know, in 2011, it's, it's really hard to find a URL. Every, <laughs> every, every right. mountain, river, tree, flower that you can imagine is, is gobbled up. So Laris is, uh, is a town where my father was born. My father's from Puerto Rico and Lorino is a family name. Ah, great. And, uh, yeah, so the URL was available. So I, it was one of the few that I was able to find. Uh, it was kind of a hair pull going through that process. So I, I grabbed it and that's, that's, that's the history. No, I get it. Uh, we as a firm here at GenCap joke about our name from a marketing 
perspective, we should be directional body of water like most private equity firms. But uh, so we get the name consideration. But I always like hearing the stories behind those, particularly the unique ones like yours. Well, um, as I mentioned during the virtual conference, you taught a course on sell side modeling um, to maximize valuations. And um, can you tell us a little bit about what that means and why sell side intermediaries should be interested in modeling for valuations? Sure. So the, the genesis for the course was, was really to provide sell-side advisors with, with another asset in their toolkit. And one way to do that is to look at the deal from the other side of the table, from the buyer's perspective. And a lot of times in the, in the lower middle market, you do valuation work and you come with a valuation that's fair. And sometimes, depending on who the buyer is, uh, buyers can sometimes pay more and also, also feel good about that deal and also walk away with a positive outcome. So the idea stems from what we call kind of the fourth valuation method, which is an ability to pay analysis. In other words, how much could a buyer pay and still meet their expected returns? And, and this is a course intended for intermediaries, I take it. I mean, obviously you can see an application for them or can you talk more I about that? Sure. Ideally for, for intermediaries, I would say also for business owners. If business owners are contemplating an exit, I would say over the next you know, two to three years, it's a good idea to understand, okay, this is a valuation, but this is kind of how my business may be priced in the market, how a buyer is going to go through the process of you know, giving me an offer. Okay. And when you're building the course, were there some, you know, kind of key points that you hope that they would take away from the course, you know, the big foot stompers that were a little less obvious or, or, you know, what, what were the, the most important takeaways for the course in your, from your perspective? Right. I think, I think that the big takeaway was one is it's, it's more of an advanced course. So mm -hmm. the intention was to kind of put the subject matter into high definition so yep. to speak. So everyone had a very solid base in corporate finance, a very solid base in financial statement analysis, but it was kind of trying to, you know, go into a little bit of, of a more granular uh, way to look at things. So there's some drills or some exercises we did where it's like, okay, if you only had access to one of the three financial statements, you know, what would you, what would you, like to have from that from that seller. We don't think in terms of that because generally when you get financial statements, you get the whole set. You know, you yep. get the income statement, balance sheet, cash flow statement. But it's a little bit like playing chess. You know, it's like, you know, if you play one of your kids in chess and you beat them, uh, you might play them again and take a couple of, of your pieces away. Mm -hmm. And then it's gonna heighten your awareness of which pieces have the most value to you uh, in, in providing you with a certain outcome. And it's the same, it, that was one of the things that the course was trying to do, uh, to give people that perspective on, you know, what's going to drive the business. So, you know, EBITDA is, is, is a critical number, uh, whether you're buying, selling, or financing a deal. Yeah. And um, that's what the course was trying to do. Okay. I, I really like that example. That was a good way of describing it, uh, the chess analogy, but backing up, I, I watched it. It was great. Um, and as you mentioned, it was a little bit higher level core. So I really liked granularity that you went into, but backing up for the folks that, that weren't able to listen to the course, 
um, during the last conference. Can you talk about how you structured it um, and, and how you kind of went through the material? Sure. So these courses, you know, it was a pilot course. Uh, I wasn't sure, you know, when you're, when you're teaching uh, and you're not sure the background of the students and you don't have a history with the attendees, what I wanted to do was just have the opportunity initially to provide some baseline uh, review on corporate finance and financial statement analysis. And then once, once that baseline was established, or at least everyone had a similar understanding of how we were going to identify certain metrics and use them, then it was, okay, let's now get into the, you know, taking, taking that data and, and how to use it and how to apply it. Because there's a, as you know, there's a lot of noise in this business. Yeah. And it's, it's, you've got to, you've got to separate the signal, you know, to use a cliche, you've got to separate the signal from the noise. Right. And I think it's something we don't tend to think about a lot. You know, I think, I think we, we tend to feel to human nature to feel like, okay, more information is better. Yeah. And I think more information can just make it more difficult and, and slow. Completely agree. I, uh, we understand the concept a lot when we're looking at, you know, investment bankers books that sometimes, you know, crest a hundred pages. And uh, we always laugh to ourselves about the poor associate that put together that much information when really we getting, you know, to use the term, we're looking for the signals and there's a lot of noise in those types of books at our part of the market anyway. Um, All right. Well, on that note, um, you know, you're trying to get at valuation uh, and, you discuss the difference between valuation and pricing during the course. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So, I mean, valuation is, is, is what the, is the starting point. It's the point of departure for a discussion on a transaction. And if you think of what valuation is, at least the, the definition of valuation, and I'm, I'm sure people have heard this in, in some shape or form, basically it's what a willing buyer and a willing seller uh, would agree to, you know, with, with no asymmetric information would agree to, to execute a transaction. What the definition of valuation does not include is you have a willing seller with multiple willing buyers. It does not, it does not introduce that concept of supply and demand. It does not mm-hmm. introduce that concept of competitive tension. So pricing and so, so when you look at M and A, yes, valuation is important, but it's a point of departure. In my experience, uh, I, you know, when I think back on it, it's, it's rare where I've, I've worked with a buyer, especially a, a large corporate buyer, where a board of directors has said, you know, what is the asset worth? Usually the, the discussion is, what do we need to, how much is it going to cost us to get, to get this asset? Right. Right? It's, 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 like buying, it's like buying tickets to the Super Bowl or a Rolling Stones concert. I mean, you want, the value of the ticket is on the, it's the face value. But I don't think, in, correct, let me know if you have, but I don't know anybody that's played, paid face value for a Super Bowl ticket. <laughs> might do it this year, uh, but it might be a little bit unique. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, but, uh, that's a good... so, so it's pricing. Yeah, I get it. That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, speaking of pricing, you also talked a lot about cost of capital. And, uh, and I do feel like sometimes that is not a consideration when folks are trying to come up with valuations on the sell side. But why does that matter? And, and how do you think about cost of capital? Sure. Well, any invest, you can't properly evaluate an investment if you don't know your cost of capital. 
I mean, you have to know what your hurdle rate is and everyone's gonna have a different cost of capital depending on your source of financing. So that is going to inform uh, your decision for what the asset is worth, what your risk tolerance is and how much you can pay for it. If your cost of capital is you know, 5% and mine is 10%, then you inherently can pay more for the same asset than I can pay, mm-hmm. right? Because I, I have a higher, I have a hurdle, so I, I, I would have to pay a, a lower price. So cost of capital is, is very important. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, there's a big difference between, as you know, between dealing with larger public companies and lower middle market companies. I mean, you speak to, the, to a CFO of a publicly traded company, he or she will know their cost of capital to, yep. to, the, to a decimal place. Some, at least in Asia, some of the, the family businesses, and when I say family businesses, some of these businesses are 100 million US dollars in revenue. You know, they're 500 employees, so they're, they're corporations. They don't know their cost of capital, don't have a clue, don't have a clue. I got it. Yeah, no, that, that I, so I guess that gets to a little bit of my second question, which is a lot of these concepts that you talked about in the course you mentioned were a little bit more applicable to the lower middle market and larger, um, you know, the main street businesses, uh, a lot of these concepts don't apply as much, but why is that? Is it cost of capital considerations or is it just the modeling is less useful or, or why is that? I think it, it has to do more with at least the, the, the perspective that the course was, was, was coming from was that it was looking at companies that are leverageable mm-hmm. that, that can, can, can borrow and, and put, put debt on the company's balance sheet. And when I say debt, I generally mean some form of institutional debt. So it can right. be bank debt. It could be, it could be private debt from the family office, but I would say, you know, third party lenders uh, to the business, you know, not, not family and friends uh, because that's going to set your, your, you know, just like the, just like everything in the capital markets is priced theoretically and, and practically priced off the 10 year treasury. Um, it's the same thing for a business. So you want to go in and I look at a small, uh, I don't know, aluminum siding business in Nashville. You know, I ideally want to be able to look at that business and go out into the market and find out, okay, what would a creditor price their capital at for this business? Yep. And once, once I have that, that, that debt pricing, then everything else kind of prices off of that. I get it. That makes a lot of sense. And, and, and also in the course, another interesting point that you made was you talked about when normalizing financial statements, you talked about the financial performance versus economic performance, which I thought was a pretty interesting distinction. Can you, can you talk about those differences and how you get there? Sure. So uh, financial statements, again, they're, they're a tool um, that, that we use in this business. And again, it's, it's, a, it's a point of departure for, for, using, for analyzing a company. The thing about financial statements is they're going to report exactly what happened to the company. Mm-hmm. So you've got to take that data and understand what happened to the company. So a lot of times companies have uh, one-off expenses. You know, they may have had a warehouse that caught on fire and had to shut down for three months or yep. an operating line that's going to be reflected in the income statement or in the financial statements. They may have, here's a classic example. You have a business 
100 million in revenue. They acquire a business that's half its size. Last year, they were at 100 million in revenue. Now they're at 150 million. Well, the business didn't grow 50%. The financial statements are going to show that it grew 50%. So you need to look at that and you need to, you know, you need to make these adjustments. And these adjustments are, you know, pro forma adjustments, uh, adjustments for one time charges. Uh, in the lower middle market, as you know, a lot of family businesses, they have expenses that are legitimate expenses through the business, but are, are driven by family, family interests, cars, yeah. country clubs. So a third party buyer is going to come in and the cash flow they would realize from that business would be different. Right. When you, when you're doing that process, do you think, you know, there are groups that are a little bit more aggressive with recasting and those types of ad backs and their groups that are less aggressive. Do you have a, a, um, I guess a tendency, or do you feel like one is more detrimental than the other in terms of valuing businesses? I, um, that's a, that's a very good question. And again, I, I like to lean. So we, what, one of our, our, criteria or the way that we look at deals, or at least when I, when I talk to sellers or we, we review opportunities, is we want to be able to put leverage on it. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean highly levered, sure. but our philosophy, we, we look at debt as kind of like a canary in the coal mine. Like if we can't find somebody that wants to provide capital at a low rate that's fixed for a finite amount of time, then we need to really question our ability to get a 20% return on our equity. So, you know, we want to probably look back and, and see what the bank or the lender would accept as ad backs. Right. Um, we may be more aggressive than that and that's fine. We'll keep that information to ourselves if we feel sure. like we can, if we can get it. But, um, you know, sometimes we, we feel, um, you know, yes, some people are very aggressive on ad backs, but, Again, the market is, is kind of efficient. If you don't like a deal, you can walk away from it. I mean, no one's, no one's forcing you to, to do it, but um, right. yeah. Okay. Well, getting back to valuation then, what, what are some of the options for ways that you can come up with a valuation? Because in the course you talk about, there's not just one way. Sure, well, there's the traditional, um, you know, there's the comparable, uh, publicly traded comparables, there are M&A precedent transactions and a DCF. A lot of times, again, in the, in the lower middle market, we, we do the ability to pay, a pay analysis. So we look at a deal, we say, okay, the seller, uh, we start off with no debt. And if it's, if it's five times EBITDA, that implies you know, a, a 20% return without any leverage. And then we start engineering our cost of capital. So if we're gonna get a 20% return and we can finance it with six percent, 50% of that with 6% debt, then that return is going to, is going to, is going to overcompensate, not overcompensate, but it's going to shift over to the equity side yep. because we're anchoring a part of that return. A part of that 20% return is going to be anchored around a 5% cost of the debt. Right. And so the excess is going to go to the equity. So that's why you, that's why we like starting with that debt and then working our way down the balance sheet. And when you were defining value 
you also mentioned in the course, and I was taking a lot of notes, as you can tell, and I just felt like you brought up a lot of interesting points. But one of them also was the difference between relative and intrinsic value. Can you talk a little bit about your points on that? Sure. So, uh, so, so th academically, there's three ways to value assets, as, as you probably remember from school, asset based, relative value, and intrinsic value, which is really cash flow based. So relative value is, you know, you, you look at a company and you want, and you, you want to be in this market and this geography and in this industry, and you look at alternatives. Okay, so if you're an investor, you want to play in a space, you say, okay, we want to be in, you know, mobile telecom, you're going to get relative valuations of what you would have to pay. Intrinsic just says, okay, this is a business that's a standalone. What would this business be worth if it's just a, a black box cash generating business. So you, we, we look at both. And, and again, this is where the pricing and the valuation comes in. Mm -hmm. Because if you, if you look at, if you look at M&A comparables, that's, that's a pricing exercise. We call it valuation, but it's yeah. pricing. Just like housing. I mean, the housing market is, is a pricing exercise. Yeah. Right. So, um, so intrinsic, you know, we, we want to look, ideally what we want to do is when we're buying something, we want to look at on the intrinsic side. And then we want to sell, we want to sell on the relative side. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. And speaking of debt too, you mentioned levered and unlevered multiples. Um, can you talk about those and, and when one is more useful than the other or when you talk about each? Sure. So this is, this is, again, this is a subtlety that, you know, sometimes people don't think about because we, we deal with multiples all the time, EBITDA multiples, PE multiples. When you, when you think about levered and unlevered, what you're doing is you're taking a metric. The easiest way to think about it is you're taking a metric, whether it's sales, operating income, net income, and you just have to ask yourself, does this number change or does this number, is this number altered by my capital structure? And if you want to simplify it further, you just say, does this number change if I put debt on the company? Hmm. So, look, so look at a house. A house, houses are valued on a price per square foot, right? Real estate. Right. So you have to ask yourself, does the amount of mortgage you put on that asset change your square footage? No. No. So that's an unlevered number. So when you look at, when you look at a company and you look at the income statement, when you start going down the income statement, you say, okay, well, if I put, if I acquire this company and put 50% debt, does it change my sales or my operating income number? And it doesn't. Okay. But it would change your net income because once you get below that operating income line, then you have claims on, on capital and those claims on capital are in lender, you know, creditors get paid first then the government gets their taxes and then your equity investors or your preferred, then the, then they're layered in. Okay. Well, on the same note, you also talk about enterprise value and market value of equity. Um, who uses what? And, and talk about the distinctions. Yeah, I would say, I mean, when you think about levered and unlevered and enterprise value and market cap, and this is a generalization. So I'm, I'm sure people in the audience will, will probably disagree at some level but it's probably the difference between public investing and private investing. If you're a public investor, when you think about the income statement, 
cut, you can cut the income statement in half. You can drive a line right through it. Right. And everything above that line has to do with operations. Right. And everything below that line is capital structure and taxes. If you are a public investor, you're buying net income. You don't have a say in how the company capitalizes itself or what their, how they manage their taxes. If you're a buyer of a business, mm. then you can control that. So you're really focused on the operations. So when you look at, when you watch TV, when you watch uh, CNBC or Bloomberg News, you can always tell the consumers of a show by the, by the adverts, by the advertising surrounding it. And it's right. basically retail investors, right? You, I, I don't think I've ever heard a commentator on TV say EBITDA or <laughs> right. multiple of EBITDA or enterprise value. It's market sure. cap and PE ratio because that's what, that's what you're buying if you buy, if you buy equities. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've never considered that, but you're exactly right. Um, yeah, and we, we, this next question we've addressed a little bit uh, when you were discussing cost of capital, but another key consideration that you talked to us about was, you know, when you're looking at your buyers, there are different types of buyers, financial buyers and strategic. What are the differences um, particularly when you're looking through the prism of valuation and modeling for that case. The, right. The differences between strategic and financial buyers. Right. Um, well, one of the things that's happening is uh, it's, it's starting to get blurrier, right? So you have financial buyers, you have strategics, and then you have financial buyers that behave or start to look like strategics. But the, the main differences are this. Um, and when I say strategics, I, generally there are other corporations that are, that are, that are interested in, in buying that asset. Financial buyers are just that. This is an investment for them. Mm -hmm. They are going in and they are seeking a certain amount of return. They will probably ideally hold that asset for three to seven years. Um, they are looking, as soon as they buy that asset, the clock is ticking and they're waking up every morning as you know, because this is what you know, you guys do, to create value, uh, more value than what when, than what they acquired, and then at some point have a liquidity event and realize that investment. So, on the corporate side, it's it's more. I don't want to say it's, it's financial buyers aren't strategic in their thinking. They're strategic in their thinking in terms of okay, where's this industry going? Where's this company going? You know, do we want to participate in it? Etc. Can we can once we buy it, can we bolt on additional companies? Can we take a twenty million dollar company and make it an eighty million dollar company in five years? Etc. Strategic buyers, they're 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 it's a buy and hold strategy, right? So they're they're yep. they're buying for the long term. They you know want to take in that business. So some of the differences, and this is very important, and this is a conversation you should have with with the seller, is that. You know, financial buyers, and these are generalizations, financial buyers generally won't, won't necessarily be the highest bidder. Right. Financial buyers, um, there's a lot of benefits to selling to a financial buyer. They can, a lot of times they can close faster. They're more of a partner with you. Um, right. I usually tell sellers, if you want to sell 100% of your business, you are going to eliminate 99% of the financial buyers out there. Right. If you want to sell the business, hand over the keys and go to the beach, 
then you need to sell to a strategic. Because if a strategic is acquiring you, they have more human resources, more industry resources, more capital resources generally, they probably don't need you for the long term. Yeah. You know, they know the industry. They may know the industry better than you do. So it depends on what the seller is, is looking for. Um, some sellers want to be involved in the business. Some sellers want to have a second liquidity event. So some sellers right. want help. Yeah. You know, they realize this is a great business. It's a great industry. I can't, I can't get from the minor league to the major leagues on my own. Now that, that makes a lot of sense. And those are important distinctions because a lot of people just think it, it has to do with process and it's not. There, there are different characteristics of each buyer depending on what the seller is looking for. So, all right, switching gears a little bit. Um, so first I want to say that we've just scratched the surface of your course. It was a great course um, and we hope to be able to see this type of course for many, many future conferences because I do think it's very valuable to the membership of M&A Source. But I also um, like to talk a little bit more um, about you personally, Rick, in an effort for the membership at M&A Source to learn a little bit about other folks in the organization. I've started trying to ask a few personal questions and personal meaning not really applying to the course, but rather to your practice generally. So do you have any rules of thumb that guide you in this business, particularly around your firm? Um, I, I would say, you know, try, I, the biggest thing I would say, rules of thumb generally would be, you know, trust your gut. Hmm. I mean, go, don't, don't, go, don't go against your initial feelings. Uh, trust your gut, do your due diligence, trust but verify. I mean, you're an intel man, you know that saying. Right. <laughs> uh, you right. Know, trust, trust but verify. Um, you know, due diligence is, it's a tricky, I mean, if you're going to have a relationship breakdown with a seller, it's going to be, I mean, because obviously you're going to get through the, through the valuation and the pricing, you know, you get an LOI in place and then you right. go through the due diligence and it's a, it's a painful process for the seller. I mean, right. you know, you're going to, they're under the microscope. There's going to be things that, uh, you know, when you're doing due, due diligence, the, the, the big thing is, you know, is it, is it negligence or is it malfeasance? Yep. You know, and honestly, 90, 99% of the time, I think it's negligence. It's just yeah. people didn't know what they were supposed to do or didn't do it. Mm. It didn't happen. Uh, but you don't know that. So right. it's a very, so I would say trust your gut. Um, I would say with, with one of the things we try to do is, you know, we, we try to be respectful of people's time. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of wheel spinning that can happen in this industry. So we try to, we try to get back, you know, a fast no is, is much better than a very long maybe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would say that those, those kind of things that are, you know, rules of thumb, do, do business with people you like. I mean, there's, there's nothing earth shattering about that, but uh, character matters. You yeah. know, I've been reading, I've been reading, uh, I, I love these corporate train wreck books. Um, <laughs> so like uh, Billion Dollar Whale, Billion Dollar Loser, bad blood. And if you read these books about all these large investments that went south, I mean, there were so many red flags and yellow flags. Um, and, and just investors saw through them because they, they started looking at the dollar signs and they, they missed those flags on the way. Yeah. 
what you mentioned a few there, and that, that's another question I have for, I like to ask people is what is something that you've read? Um, and it can be one of those books recently that related to business or not that you really liked or one that you read a long time ago that you like to reference from time to time. I just finished, uh, actually on my, on my, I would say within the last week, I just finished a billion dollar loser, which mm -hmm. was about WeWork. Oh yeah. And, and now I, great read. I mean, and, and I also enjoy, and this isn't very intellectual or literary, but you know, I, I, I love to read books that journalists write because they're, they're quick reads. Yeah. You know, they're not flowery. It's not like James Joyce or William Faulkner. You're going to get through it. You know, you know, you know, low friction, low drag, and you learn a lot. And those books read very fast. And it was a journalist that wrote this one uh, on WeWork and, and Adam Newman. And I mean, one of the things, again, that I like about these books, one is, is all these characters had, had flaws, apparent, very apparent flaws. I mean, we all have flaws, but they had very apparent character flaws that, that should have you know, hesitated or should have put uh, investors on hold, but also stresses the importance of due diligence, the importance of due diligence. Yep. Uh, and, and, and just people don't, it's amazing how many people just don't do it or they do it by proxy. Right. They're like, oh, you know, SoftBank's in this deal. So I should be in this deal. And SoftBank, I mean, there's a lot of smart, super smart, talented people there, but their investment committee is one man. Yeah. And his investment decision is he's going to meet with the founder for five minutes. And if he gets a certain vibe, he's going to write him a $2 billion check, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so, you know, you trust, but verify, do your due diligence, go cut tire kicking. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, but it's an, it's an enjoyable read. So I like those books. I, it, it, I feel like over time, it's going to be its own literary, uh, investigative category. So yeah. genre. I hadn't read that one. Um, I had, I, actually, I haven't read Bad Blood either, but I've read a lot of the work and I was thinking about the fact that another journalist wrote that one. And he followed the Theranos story pretty closely. And I really loved all of his articles as that story continued to develop. So I'll probably have to pick up both of those now that you mentioned it. I really like, like that type of writing as well. All right. Uh, one other question too. Um, do you have any mentors in your career or have you had any and, and why were they mentors of yours? You know, I haven't had very, what I would say specific, well, well mentors, you know, when you, when, when I started it in the business, they basically assigned you a, a mentor. They si assigned you a junior and a senior mentor, but like anything, it's, it's almost like finding your partner. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you just kind of find each other. And I was fortunate. Uh, I worked, my first job was at Donaldson, Lufkin and Jenrette. And I was fortunate to be with a lot of people, be in the same room with a lot of people that, that went on and, and you know, Ken Mullis, you know, I've been on calls with Ken Mullis, uh, you know, listening as a very junior associate, but just being in the room with, with certain people and how they approach an investment and, you know, really, drill into an opportunity. I mean, some of these people can do it with five questions. You know, they know exactly what to ask. Yep. And it, it you know, you take notes. I mean, that's, you, you learn by just being around other people and being part of a community. I mean, that's, that's one of the, the things with M&A Source that I liked is when I left 
big corporate bank. I mean, when you're in a large firm, you know, I, I'm making this up, but my guess is it, the number of associations you belong to at a large, the number of associations you belong to is inversely proportional to the size of your firm. Yeah. Right. If you're at Merrill Lynch with, you know, I don't know, 50,000 employees, you probably don't join outside associations. I mean, most large banks have their own zip code. Yeah. But as you go into the middle market and you're at a smaller firm, these relationships, these associations, these conferences have more value. Yeah. Because, I mean, one of the things I discovered when I went from, you know, Deutsche Bank to, to, the, to the middle market was it's a different game. I mean, I, I knew kind of the skill set and I knew what needed to happen. But the, the game is very different and the nuances are very different. And one thing I realized is I need to, I need to get re-educated on how this market works. And, and, and I, was, I didn't have a lot of resources. In other words, you know, uh, colleagues. Yep. So, you know, I, looked, I started looking for information and associations I could belong to and conferences I could attend. And you learn a lot just by, again, by being in the room and listening to other people speak. I mean, that's one of the benefits of these courses is not only do you get good content from the instructor, but, you know, I love sitting in them because of what the other participants uh, add to it, add to the dialogue. That is a recurring theme with everyone that I talk to in these podcasts and webinars about M&A source is what, you know, we all, you know, we're all friends, frankly, and you touched on the fact that it's good to do business with people you like and people you trust. And, and I do feel like that's probably the biggest benefit to us at M&A Sources. The other members are our friends now in the business, but also it's just a great way to become aware of good ideas. Um, you know, we are, I'm sure you feel this way in Singapore and we certainly feel this way in Nashville. It's not exactly a finance hub. It's nice every six months to get together with folks and periodically check in with friends in the group and, you know, just hear about what's going on and get the pulse of the market. And then like in the case of your course, learn a few things about, you know, how people think about things and, and what's current in the market. Um, it's really helpful to cross pollinate when you don't work for a, you know, bulge bracket firm where a lot of these ideas are coming to you. So um, great. True. Yeah, great place to end. So thank you, Rick. I really appreciate you coming on and, uh, and could not agree anymore with, with those concepts and really appreciate you teaching the course and coming on today to talk a little bit more about it. Well, thanks very much, Lamar. Thanks for the opportunity and uh, have a happy new year. You too. Well, thank you, Rick. And for the listeners, if you want to learn more about modeling for the sell side or the buy side or about any other M&A related topics provided by M&A Source, please visit M&A Source's website at masource.org. And please feel, feel free to reach out to the staff listed there. And if this podcast or any others on our feed interested you, uh, I would also highly encourage you to join M&A Source if you haven't already. And also attend one of our biannual conference events where courses like this one, sell side modeling are taught. And um, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Lamar Stanley, and I look forward to chatting with you again on the next episode of the M&A Source Podcast. Thank you for joining us for the M&A Source Podcast. If you would like to learn more about M&A Source or would like to join, please visit M&A Source's website, www.masource.org, where you can find a wealth of information to include information about M&A Source's biannual conferences. 
Thanks again for joining. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope that you'll go to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Join us next time for another edition of the M&A Source Podcast. 